someone once bluntly and really just quite brashly asked blind and deaf Helen Keller, isn't it terrible to be blind? To which she responded, better to be blind and see with your heart than to have two good eyes and see nothing. Have you ever considered how much we, how much attention we give to our ability to see? Not only see physically with our eyes, but also see with our hearts, if you will. How much attention, how much trust we put in something being true because we can see it. Physically see it with our eyes. In science, scientists seek to prove things which they can observe with their eyes. And therefore conclude it must be true. Certain laws of gravity and other sorts are, are because they're observable, they're visible, you can see them, they're tangible. They're, they're not just theory, not hypothesis, but they're verifiable because you can see them, they're tangible. You can reach out and touch them as, as you reach out and touch your own flesh. You can sense that you're alive, that you're here this morning, that you're not a ghost. We depend so much on what we can see whether it be our trust in our money because we can see it. Right? We can open our phones and look at our checking accounts or call the bank or, or see it underneath our mattress. Right? We can see our money. It's there and we depend on it because it's something we see. This morning we're going to see a man. We're going to be encountered and confronted with a man who couldn't see. But yet he saw. A man who couldn't See with his literal eyes, but he could see with his heart of faith that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't just some old man or some random rabbi teaching. He wasn't just your average pilgrim going up to Jerusalem. No, when he saw Jesus with his spiritual eyes, he knew that it was God. And he believed in him. And trusted in him. Well, I invite you this morning to turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be reading this morning verses 46 through 52. Closing out a section here in Mark's gospel. By the way, we're going to take a break next week. Consider in a sermon uh, more topically what church membership is. and How we covenant together. This morning, though, we're going to consider Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Hear the word of the Lord. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. He cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. Three things to consider as we think about this passage this morning. Uh, as we think about the context of the passage first, as we just sort of sort of settle in on, or sort of, why is this story here? Why this story? We've heard stories about Jesus healing blind men, uh, but why this particular story, and why in this particular place? A couple of things to consider in the context. First, we remember that Jesus has been, in this section of Mark's Gospel, confronted by really two obstacles. First has been the religious leaders. So all the way back in chapter 8, Jesus was being confronted by the religious leaders there in Jerusalem or in Israel. Uh, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated Jesus. They wanted to see Jesus dead. Uh, they didn't like him uh, because he was radical in his teaching, and they misunderstood who he was. They were blind to the reality that Jesus was the Son of God. Uh, but also there was this blurred or dull vision of Jesus' disciples. So remember the, the healing of the blind man back in chapter 9. Uh, Jesus goes and he heals him. But then the guy says, I, I see trees. I, I see people. They look like trees. And, and then Jesus touches him again and then he can see clearly. Uh, that, that, that was meant to illustrate to you and I uh, the kind of blurred vision that the disciples had. They, they sort of kind of got, they're like, okay, I'm getting it. Like, okay, Jesus, I'm, I'm beginning to kind of understand who you are. But they didn't get it, right? They didn't have that like, aha, light bulb gone off moment in their life yet. And this is upon really the precipice of, of, of Peter saying that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. So Peter is confessing these things, but yet not quite understanding what that means or what kind of implications that is for his life. But a third thing to consider also is look at where we're at. Just look down in your Bibles um, and just gaze your eyes just to the just below the passage we just read and see chapter 11, the triumphal entry, a familiar passage to, to many people about Jesus. Remember that, remember that day where Jesus came into Jerusalem riding a, a little donkey and people were throwing palm branches and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Look at verse 10 of chapter 11. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What we see here in this, in this passage following our text this morning is that as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, the people treat him like a king. What Mark is driving us to understand in this passage is that the king has arrived. That Jesus is that long-awaited king with whom God promised would come. Mark is, if you will, closing out Act 2 and opening up Act 3 of a play. Now think about Mark's gospel in really three acts. First act, who Jesus is, what Jesus has sort of who he is, that is, he's the Son of God. Then it moves into that middle act, that act two, where Jesus says, hey, look, this is what I came to do. This is then who you are to be as my disciples, which is the section we're, we're wrapping up, we're concluding this act. And so Mark is, if you will, finishing up, tidying up some things about what it means to follow Jesus, and then introducing a new topic or a new discussion, which is who Jesus is. Uh, Mark is preparing us in act three for the redemptive story to continue to unfold. God's redemptive plan has not uh, sort of been concluded yet. 
Chapter 11 sparks that Passion Week where we begin to see clearly the identity of Jesus, but more than that, what Jesus has come to do. So what is it that Mark is teaching us in this passage? What, what is, if you will, the point of this passage? What, what, why is this passage here in this place? I think what Mark is trying to teach us is this. that Despite the blindness of those closest to Jesus, it was a blind man who could truly see who Jesus was and what he had come to accomplish. Genuine discipleship is displayed through this man's persistent faith in Christ. Jesus has been teaching us on what it means to follow him, what it means to be a disciple. And what we see encapsulated in this short story is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, there's much more that can be said about discipleship and about discipling. But what we see is sort of encapsulated, a snapshot, a, a Polaroid, a picture of, of what a disciple looks like. And central to this passage is the coupling together of mercy and faith through the person and work of Jesus Christ. What we see here is a sort of a marriage happening between faith and mercy. That is that you receive mercy by faith and not by works. You receive mercy and grace not by what you can do and how you can impress God and, you know, look at me, God, I'm amazing, but rather Confident trust and dependency upon the person work of Jesus Christ. It's going to think about in our passage this morning. So this healing of blind Bartimaeus points us then really to three characteristics, I think, of a disciple. Three characteristics of a genuine disciple. First, a painful awareness of their condition before a holy God. Secondly, a penetrating insight into the person of Christ. Third and finally, a persistent face, faith in the face of obstacles. A persistent faith in the face of obstacles. First, we see that genuine disciples are painfully aware of their condition before a holy God. Let's look at the story this morning. We're told by Mark that Jesus is traveling from Jericho. He was in Jericho. We didn't really know what he did there. Mark doesn't tell us. Uh, remember, Mark is kind of like that fast-pacing camera in an action movie. He's just sort of panning, the, panning quickly through the story, the redemptive story. He wants to get to the cross. <laughs> he, he goes really fast, like he's got the movie on fast forward, and then chapter 11 comes, and he puts it on slow-mo. And he just says, let's stay here and think well and hard about Jesus' last week. Three years are encapsulated in just ten chapters, and boy, he settles in on the last week of Jesus' life in five chapters. But Mark wants us to see something clearly here. Jesus is drawing near to Jerusalem. Jericho is about 3,500 uh, you know, feet below uh, um, Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's sort of way, way up on the mountain there in Jericho. Jericho is a very wealthy city. Herod the Great had kind of spruced the place up, if you will. It was a very wealthy place. Perhaps a place where the rich young ruler who we accounted a few weeks ago came from. Uh, so riches and poor uh, would have mingled together here in this city. This was a, a lavish city. It was a wealthy city. And of course, with wealth often comes beggars like we see here. 
these beggars would, would stand outside the city gates as people were coming into the city. They would be there and uh, begging for money. And remember, there's no welfare system in, in Israel, okay? So there's no, so there, there's no Social Security, there's no Medicaid, Medicare, you know, those kind of things. They didn't have that, right? And so begging, if you didn't have a family to take care of you, like this is the life you live. This, was, this would have been your life. And, and for this, this man, he was not only a beggar, but he was a blind beggar. Right? So he wasn't even poor, like, you know, but he was really impossible for him to get a job. Right? So there was no you know, ADA compliance. There was no you know, um, people out there advocating for blind folks. You know, what it was was basically if you're blind, you just go sit over there in the corner until you die and stop being a burden to everybody else. Right? That was their view of blind people. Also, above and beyond that, there was this view that their blindness was a direct result of their own sin. So remember John 9. So in John's gospel, John tells us a story of a blind man, and Jesus' disciples ask him, who sinned, this, this, this guy or the dude's parents? Like, who, who, why is this man blind? What, what sin caused his blindness? Was it his own sin? You know, right? So in their mind, they, they, they equated physical suffering with sin. Now, that is true that often physical suffering is a result or a consequence of sin, but not blindness. And so what they... What they see here is basically an individual who's a social outcast. This is someone who's been marginalized by society. But it is those very people whom are on the fringe of society. Not at the center. Not the rich man. So remember, the disciples have just witnessed a rich man walk away with his head hung. Jesus telling them that rich folks can't enter, the, can't enter the kingdom of heaven because they love their riches more than the kingdom. And it's in that context we see this blind man, this, this one who's on the fringe of society, this, this Bartimaeus. Mark includes his name. None of the other synoptic gospels include his name. Um, Bartimaeus literally means sin of, son of Timaeus. Perhaps Mark includes it because... Um, the Romans that he's writing to, the Roman Christians would have been familiar with Bartimaeus. Perhaps they uh, brushed shoulders with Bartimaeus in their worship services. Perhaps they had heard of the story. We're also told that he's the son of Timaeus. Perhaps also Timaeus was a well-known figure in the church there. Uh, and so, no, we don't really know why. Um, but in essence, he's a no-name. Bar, meaning son of Timaeus. That's all he is. He's a no-name. He's a no-name man here. But it's this no-name beggar that Jesus welcomes into the kingdom. It's this blind man who is an outcast of society, marginalized. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder that it is those whom the world rejects, like Jesus himself, that God welcomes into his kingdom. So if you come this morning thinking, you know, wow, I, you, know, you know, Pastor, my life is a mess. I'm a mess. You know, I'm not a model person. Well, friend, that is the kind of person God welcomes into his kingdom. Look, all of us here today that call upon the name of Christ, we are a mess. And that's why we call upon Jesus. Because we know that we are a mess. France commentator on Mark's gospel writes this. 
what this man lacks in eyesight, he makes up for insight. I love that. What this man lacks in eyesight, he, pay, pay, he makes up for an insight. Like he gets it. He's like, wait a minute. I know this guy. This guy sounds really, really familiar. This is God. And I'm going to give him praise and glory. And so what we see here in, in verse 47 is Bartimaeus hearing about Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know, maybe perhaps he's already heard, maybe someone in the crowd. Luke kind of fills us in a little bit, telling us that some people were discussing, like it was a big hustle-bustle deal, right? So, so again, let's just sort of picture what's happening here. All right, so the pilgrims, pilgrimage to Jerusalem was a big deal in Israel. All right, so the Passover is coming up. It's next week. Okay, the Passover for them is next week, and they are going to all travel to Jerusalem. Hundreds of thousands of Israelites are sort of descending upon Jerusalem. Jesus is one of them. Jesus, though, is a rabbi. Uh, Jesus, not in an official sense, but he's, a, he's considered a, a rabbi, a teacher. And the crowds are attracted to them. And so Jesus isn't just sort of strolling on the street by himself. He's probably got a few hundred people traveling with him. And boy, it's a hustle and a bustle, right? The, it's a buzz, right? I mean, clearly, what do you think they're talking about? Do you think they're talking about sports? Or do you think they're talking about, you know, dead people coming back to life? That, hey, Jesus, like, touched that guy back there. He was dead. And you now he's walking with us, right? You think that that's probably what they were talking about, I would think, right? And so what we see is in the midst of this sort of buzz around Jesus, this blind man hears and somehow connects together who Jesus is. He, like, connects the dots, like, Wait a minute, like, I've heard this stuff before. Isaiah said something about this, this chosen one who would come, and this chosen one was going to come, and when he comes, he's going to heal blind people. And he's going to, and I've heard about him doing this. And he cries out to him for mercy. Brothers and sisters, I just, we could camp out here all day and just think about the desperation here. Oh, the cry for help. Bartimaeus in, is desperate. But his desperation is the doorway to faith. His desperation. Look, I, well, what is so wonderful and so great is that Bartimaeus recognizes that he is painfully unworthy of Jesus. That was the problem with the rich man. This isn't the problem with Bartimaeus. The rich man... What his problem was with his stuff was in front of his face and he couldn't see Jesus. For his wealth was blinding him from faith in Jesus. But for this poor man who had nothing, he recognized his desperate situation. Why did he need mercy? Why did he cry out to God for mercy? Because he recognized that he was a sinner in need of mercy. He recognized who he was. And that a holy God. Bartimaeus is, if you will, pointing us back to verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Bartimaeus understood that to mean him. That Jesus came to ransom him. To have mercy upon him. I wonder, do you go to Jesus full of your accomplishments like the rich young ruler? Do you go to Jesus just saying, hey, Jesus, like I obey the law. I'm good there. 
I just sort of check off the tip. Man, I've never murdered anybody. Boy, I, I don't use your name. I don't curse. I, I'm, I'm good with there. Do you just go to him with all this laundry list of good deeds you've done? Sort of unload on God your goodness and your, your wonder and how great you are, sort of really patting yourself? Or do you, like this blind man, come empty, simply crying, crying out to God for mercy? Couldn't shut this guy up. He was desperate for Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that is what the gospel reminds us this morning. If you come this morning full of yourself, you're not going to sense a need for Jesus. But when you look at your life, you take this as sort of honest assessment, you sort of like, my life is a mess. I'm a mess. And you sort of realize that you're a mess, and you're like looking, you're like, man, what, what can I do to fix me? What can I do to fix my life? What, 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 what kind of band-aids can I put? And you go running for those things. You, you're searching high and low on the internet, Googling how to fix my life, and you know, um, going to the bookstore, talking to friends. Hey, how do I fix my messed up life? Well, friend, if that is you this morning, only Jesus can fix your life. Jesus. That's what we sang about this morning. Just as I am. Just as screwed up as I am, I come to Jesus. Just as messed up and sinful and wicked and foolish and blind, I come. I come. That's it. That's all it takes. That's all it takes for you this morning to trust in Christ. To turn, to say, you know, I don't want my life anymore. I wreck it. Look, I blew my life up. I got it. I see that. I mean, why do we hold on to the mess of our life? I mean, we see how messed up it is. Why do we hold on to it? Well, friends, may we just give it up. and Say, hey, you know, I blew this up. And now Jesus is going to fix it. Jesus is going to fix it. Repentance and faith is the response that God calls us when we are confronted with our sin and we see the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its glory. That's what this man does. He flees from his sin and trusts in Christ. I just wonder, do you just find security in yourself? You heard in the prayer of confession just how we often are tempted just to find security in stuff. Safety and in our lives. And brothers and sisters, don't think that this message is not for you. We need daily to cry out like this blind man. It may be the same way this blind man did. We need to be kind of foolish for Jesus, I think. And look like fools. And don't come in here every week smiley faces and thinking everything's okay. You are not helping yourself, friend. Brother and sister, you are not helping yourself if you're putting a smile on, but inwardly you're broken. You need Jesus. You need the mercy of Jesus. How does your prayer life, or the lack thereof, reflect your dependence upon yourself? Often I'm convicted in that. My lack of prayer is a reflection of my confidence and security in myself. I got it. I got this, God. I can do this. Rather than like this blind man, crying to God for mercy and for help. Secondly, we see in this passage, 
genuine disciples display a penetrating insight into the person of Jesus. We're told here that this blind man doesn't just cry out, Jesus, Jesus, but he cries out something specific. Bartimaeus cries out to the son of David. To the son of David. This is strange. We've not been confronted with this title just yet. In Mark's gospel, Mark sends the focus on the son of man, right? Jesus' sort of favorite title for himself. If you ask Jesus, hey, what's your name? Son of man, that's me. Right? That's what Jesus would have said. But son of David, that was sort of Mark or Matthew. So if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew uses this a lot, son of David. Um, in fact, he starts and, and sort of concludes his gospel centered around the fact that Jesus is, is literally, like not just, you know, this isn't sort of like figurative or spiritualized here. This is literally Jesus of Nazareth is a man who descended from King David. If you know, like David, who's David? My friend David? David here? No, no, King David, right? David was the, the great king of Israel. He was the, sort of the, the pinnacle king. He was the one whom God said is a man after my own heart, right? Now, David was a sinner, right? He's wicked. He did some pretty messed up stuff, um, right? He had an affair and then had the husband of the woman's uh, killed, right? So David wasn't a saint. He needed Jesus. But, but David was that pinnacle king whom God said, through you, I will bring an heir. So let's just sort of pick up on the story here. In 2 Samuel, so way back, you know, a thousand years or so before uh, here in Nazareth that we're reading our text, about a thousand years before, King David's on the throne, and Samuel, a prophet from God, sort of came. And this is what the Lord says. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and, you're, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you whom shall come from your own body. That is, it's going to be one of your kids. Okay, clearly. Okay. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then listen. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So what, what Samuel is prophesying here is that one day, one of David's children... Could have been Samuel, or excuse me, Solomon. His, for, you know, but it wasn't. Right? Sort of passed on. A thousand years goes by. They've gone into exile. They've come back from exile. They're sort of not really a king anymore in Israel. They're sort of Herod, which is just sort of like a makeshift, like little puppet, right? Rome is now occupying Israel. Israel is no longer sort of a sovereign nation. It's now controlled. And so, in the midst of this, Jesus comes and he says, I am the king whom God foretold through the prophets. And in Isaiah's sort of prophecy that we heard this morning, and then also in Isaiah 35, we see a coupling together of the king and also some activity that the king will, will do. The king will do this. He will open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And so when Jesus is healing blind people, Jesus is clearly fulfilling what was foretold hundreds of years earlier about him as a sign to the people and to us who Jesus is, telling us who he is. But what did, what did, the, uh, what did the apostles think about Jesus? Well, listen to what Paul says in the beginning of Romans. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
which he, pro- now listen, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what we see Bartimaeus pointing us to is that Jesus was not merely a man, but that he was the God-man. And that what he is preparing us for is what Jesus is going to declare the next day, or what the people are going to sing about, as we already heard in verse 10 of chapter 11, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So all along we have said Jesus declaring the kingdom of God is at hand, right? All the way back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus is going around like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? What does he say? The kingdom of God is here at hand. It's, it's, it's arrived because the king has arrived. And he says, I'm that king. And what we are to see this morning is that Jesus is the king, not only of Israel, but of the whole cosmos. Jesus now sits enthroned above the universe. And we submit our lives willingly to his lordship. Jesus really is a king. He's a king of everyone. Regardless if you recognize him this morning as a king, he's still the king. Excuse me, he's still the king. And we willingly submit to his lordship. That, that is, we... One just sort of practical example of that is whatever comes into our lives, whether it be pain, suffering, whether it be physical or health, we trust that the good king has allowed it. He's, a, he, he's not only just sort of setting up on a throne, just like, hey, man, I hope things go well down there. No, but rather he is active. His hands are in everything. And friends, we need to see God's hand in our life. We need to see his hand working. Just wonder, how does this idea of lordship, that he is king of all things, affect your view of the current presidential election? Jesus is really lord. At the end of the day, friend, it does not matter who is king here in D.C. And just as a reminder, this kingdom will one day be destroyed. When the Bible speaks about Jesus destroying nations, he doesn't mean like every nation, you know, all the bad nations, and not the United States. No, he means all nations will bow, all kings will bow, all presidents will bow, regardless of what they believe about Jesus. But it doesn't matter who is in the White House when Jesus comes, there still is a White House. That president will bow before Jesus. And as Christians, this gives us the confidence to know that though the world around us come crashing down, oh, Jesus is still king. And he can even make wicked kings and queens bow before him. We may have a wicked queen in D.C. We may have a queen Jezebel in D.C. But listen, King Jesus 
is still on the eternal throne. And even wicked Queen Jezebel died. Third and finally, we see genuine disciples have persistent faith in the face of obstacles. Persistent faith in the face of obstacles. We're told that the the crowds wanted this man to shut up. I mean, that's literally what it means. Verse 48, and they rebuked him, telling him, be silent. (laughs) We don't know who did this. Perhaps it was the disciples. They've already demonstrated, right, this behavior. We're just not really told who is doing this. Shut up. Jesus does not have time for you. Jesus doesn't have time for beggars. Jesus doesn't have time for poor people. Jesus has important business to do. Jesus is on his way to Calvary. Perhaps they understood that. I don't think they did, but... But what we see here is just an illustration for our own souls again that the kingdom of God is for the least of these. We're told by Mark that he stopped. I mean, to be captivated by this, right? So Jesus is traveling. He's going, right? Where is Jesus going? Well, Jesus, of all the people, knew where he's going, right? He's going to Calvary. This is why I came. I came to go to the cross, and he is on his way to the cross, right? Luke says he set his eye resolutely to go to the cross. All Jesus could see in his eyesight was the cross. Though there was crowds around him, distractions all around, what Jesus saw was the cross of Calvary, and nothing was going to prevent him, not even Satan himself. And so he's going to the cross, and in the midst of that, this blind little beggar is crying out to him, and the crowds are obviously getting frantic. Shut up. Be quiet. He's not have time for you. Stop it. And stops, dead in his tracks. On his way to Calvary, he stops because he cares for sinners like us. Shows us the length at which Jesus will go. Yet he did not have little eyes to see. He had eyes of faith. And that faith was persistent. Nothing was going to stop him from getting to Jesus. Be quiet. Shut up. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Oh, but he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. He's sort of, he's like, we could, it's like, you know, Mark perhaps is hearing this from Peter. He's like, man, we tried to shut that guy up. Man, we we told him to be quiet, but man, he got louder and louder. And he was so annoying and he cried to Jesus for mercy. And Jesus stopped. Jesus healed him. Because God had compassion on that sinner that day. Friends, this is the overarching point in which Mark wants us to see. That God is merciful towards sinners. That the very outcasts of society are brought to the very center in the gospel. It is not the the wise of the world, the powerful of the world. It's not the, the presidents and the governors that God's concerned about. But the weak and the despised and the marginalized. Those are the ones that are celebrated. Those are the ones Mark's writing to. He's writing to you and I. We see here that this passage points us again to who Jesus is. He's the healer. And we see Bartimaeus' persistence as he cries out that nothing is going to stop him. I just wonder, what are you looking at in your life? 
What's stopping you from crying out to Jesus? What are you hearing from others? Maybe perhaps you're hearing things from the crowds around you, the people around you. You don't need to pray. Just suck it up. Get through it. You don't need to, I mean, God's clearly not in your life. Just look at how messed up it is. Look, if God was in your life, everything would be going well. Everything would be good. What are you listening to? What do you hear? Well, what, are you, what are you listening to? Again, in this sort of political climate. Oh, the world's going to end. Praise God. Jesus comes again. Let it end. Friend, I just wonder, if you're not a Christian this morning, will you allow the crowds of this world to lie to you about who Jesus is and your need for Jesus? Oh, you're not that bad. Mercy? That's for like really sinful people, like real bad, bad people in prison. And gangbangers and stuff. That's, that's what that's for. Oh, you're, you live a good life, you're good. Do you hear that ancient serpent whispering through this crowd? You don't need Jesus. Jesus doesn't have time for you. Look what the man does, right? Take heart. Get up. He's calling you. Verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he springs and jumps up and he runs after Jesus. He says, I'm out of here. Jesus is calling me. I'm out of here. I ain't listening to you anymore. Jesus is calling me. Oh, may we do the same. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run that race. Let us run after Christ. We are told by Jesus that this man's faith is what healed him. Now we might be confused to think, oh, it was this guy, you know, this guy, it was his faith, right? If you believe it, if you claim it, if you name it, and you claim it, then you have it. Well, that's a lie. That's not true. Despite what some makeup looking preacher on TV tells you. Rodney Decker says in his commentary, more likely, or uh, a better way of saying this, was because you believed, I have healed you. That's what Jesus is meaning here. It mean that it was his faith itself that healed you. But it was the agency. He was trusting. And isn't that the point Mark is teaching us here? That, that Jesus is the agent of healing. The whole point of the passage is about Jesus doing the miracle. Not about this blind man's faith. What we see encapsulated here at the end is what it means to follow Jesus. The man turned from his sin. The man trusted in Christ. And finally, look what he does. He travels with him. He follows him. He follows him. He goes away, Jesus. Those who ask for mercy from Jesus must be willing to follow Jesus. Even 
if that means going to a cross. That's where that man's heading. He's heading to a cross. A cross where he will see his Savior die. In this passage, we're told, in conclusion, that the man, when he approached Jesus that final time, when he came to Jesus, he says, Rabbi. Literally, he said, Rabuni. It was a lofty term that was not used of just ordinary people. Rabuni, he says, Rabbi. A title that would have been reserved for only those of great significance. In fact, most would not even call their local rabbi Rabuni, but they reserved that title for God alone. They would call God their teacher and rabbi. But another in the Gospels cried out after Rabuni too. Mary Magdalene, when she was at the tomb after Jesus' death, she was there to anoint him. Mary Magdalene and the other ladies found that Jesus was not there. The other ladies ran away frantically, but Mary Magdalene, John tells us, stayed. And she had this obscure conversation with the gardener. It was not the gardener. It was in fact her Savior. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And listen what she says. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. She saw him. Friend, do you see Jesus today? Or does your sin blind you? I pray that God's Spirit would open your eyes as He opened the eyes of that blind man today. Brother or sister, I pray that you see Jesus clearly. That maybe today if you come with blurred vision, He would again restore that 20-20 sight to your eyes. And you can join Mary in saying, I have seen the Lord. Let's pray. Let's pray. Holy God, omnipotent Lord, great I am, creator of the heavens and the earth, the one true God. We give you praise and glory, for you are merciful towards sinners. And God, I pray today that you would open our eyes to see you. Like blind Bartimaeus, we would see clearly who Jesus is, that our trust would not be in the things we can see, physical things of this world, but our faith would be in the eternal Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, who died for our sin. Father, I pray that we would see greater faith among us as Christians, that we would go to those who are weak and those who are helpless and marginalized by society, that we would give ourselves to share the gospel, that we would see blind sinners come to faith in Christ. Father, give us eyes to see that we may give glory to you alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.